That song is, of course, taken from the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, which says, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer to that question is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to our great Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The Catechism goes on to explain what that all means and how Christ operates in preservation and grace and strengthening his people. And my goal for us this morning is that we would leave here after worshiping together, after hearing Psalm 16 preached, and with confidence be able to say, our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. We all need that. I need that. I know you need it. And I pray that that's the case this morning. Psalm 16 is where we find ourselves now as we work through the Psalms over the summer. And I think Psalm 16 is one of the most encouraging and life-giving psalms that David wrote. And I know that's a bold statement because David wrote a lot of things. But there is so much hope to be found here. So much confidence for the believer to have. And I hope that we can see that this morning as we look at this together. So I'm not going to waste any time. Let's get right to it. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalms chapter 16. And follow along as I read. Psalm chapter 16, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me and because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or allow your Holy One to see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father in heaven, we come hungry and needy to your word this morning. And for all the things around us that offer a false sense of security, a false hope, we turn now from those things to the source of everlasting hope and joy, which is you. Not your gifts, not what you're able to do for us, but you, O Lord, are our portion and our cup. For the heart that's here that is discouraged this morning, weighed down by cares in the world, necessary things, responsibilities, Lord, lift them up. For those who are struggling to accept the fact that you could love them despite their sin, lift them up. For those who are experiencing your goodness, for those whom the lines have fallen in pleasant places right now, Lord, remind them that it's all from you. And I pray that each one of us would leave here strengthened, encouraged and prepared to live a life of obedience to you, empowered by your spirit, informed by your word, 
and encouraged by other believers. Father, come and do this work. I can't do this, and I need your help, so please come. Give grace in the preaching and grace in the listening, and may Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his name that I pray, amen. As we come to Psalm 16, then my working thesis, my summary of this psalm is those who make the Lord their refuge will dwell secure with him forever. Those who make the Lord their refuge will dwell secure with him forever. I'm seeing this psalm in four sections, and you don't have to follow this structure, but it's loosely how I'm going to visit it. David makes a statement about God and about what he has done, and then in another couple verses, we see the living out of this, the response of faith, and then another statement about what God has done, and then the response of living this out in faith. So it's kind of two things repeated as we go through. So let's start at the beginning and see what the Lord has for us. David opens this psalm with a request, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, if you've been here for a few weeks, you remember that back starting in Psalm 9 and going through 14, we've seen David crying out to God. He's, he's making these urgent requests that God would save him, that God would rescue him, that he would say, David says, how long am I going to stay in this situation? There's a desperation to a lot of the cries that David has made in these past psalms. Now, these aren't necessarily chronological but they're put in this order, I think, for a reason. So now when we come to Psalm 16, we don't quite have the same level of mm, desperate crying out to God. Rather, what I think David is doing is calling on God to do what God has already promised to do. Okay? He's not saying, I'm in a really desperate spot right now, God, save me. He's done that. But here what I think David is doing is he's saying, Lord, do what you've already promised to do. Preserve me, keep me, carry me through this life. We can see this even in what David asks. He's not asking for deliverance or rescue, but for preservation, that the Lord would continue to strengthen him, to live a life of example, a life of obedience to what the Lord has commanded him to do. In some ways, David is, and I've got to be careful with how we talk about this, David is reminding God of the promise that God has made. Now, not reminding in the sense that God forgot and needs to be brought to attention, but David is calling on the covenant that God has made with him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read about God making a covenant with David to establish his family, his throne, forever. And of course, when we tie that to the New Testament, we know that he means that the Messiah is going to come in the line of David and have an everlasting kingdom. But in the context, God is telling David, I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to establish you on the throne. This can be summarized in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. God says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And then later... David responds to God, and I'm going to read this section for you because I think it's, it really helps with understanding what he says in Psalm 16. So God makes this covenant with David. This is 2 Samuel 7. God promises, here's what I'm going to do. And David says to God then, this is verse 25, 
And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning this house, and do as you have spoken. For you, O Lord, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised a good thing to your servant. Therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. You, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed. David's saying, I have confidence to pray this to you, God, because you've said you're going to do this. So when we come to Psalm 16, when David calls upon the Lord to preserve him, because he has taken refuge in him, he's not saying, look, I've been a good boy, you better do what you said. Rather, he's calling upon the covenant-keeping nature of God. God made a promise, and David is saying, do what you've promised to do. Preserve me, because I have made you my refuge. In verse 2, when he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. We should hear this in contrast to what we've already seen. If you remember, chapter 13, we saw the collection of, of these wicked men who have set themselves against God and said, nope, I am not going to be put under anyone's authority. They said, we have our words with us. Who could be Lord over us? Remember that? Okay, now in contrast, David is approaching God and saying, you are my Lord. I have made the Lord my refuge. And he said, oh God, you are my God. Oh Lord, you are my Lord. David uses the first Lord there is the Hebrew word El. It's just kind of a generic name for God. It's what the Greek translation of the Old Testament would would translate as Theos. It's just a word for God. Then when he says, O Theos, O El, you are my Lord, it's Adonai, which means master, sovereign, over him. So David is saying, I have made the Lord my refuge, and in that declaration, he is saying that God is his Lord. Unlike the wicked, who have said, nope, we're not going to have any Lord over us, we're in charge, David says, I know I'm not in charge. O Lord, you are my Lord. This is confirmed by the next phrase he uses in here, I have no good apart from you. I think a better translation would be to say, my works do not rise above you. The idea is that any good that David has, any kind of work that he might do, anything inside him is not better than God. It is not putting himself in a position over God. Therefore, he says, whatever I do, whether it be my best effort, whether it be my works, whatever, is not over you. I've made you my Lord. I am under you, subservient to you. David is placing himself in the care of God. Jesus, in his teaching in the New Testament, places himself in the position of this Adonai that David is talking about in John 15 when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Very similar to what David's saying here. David says, I have made the Lord into my sovereign. I have put myself under him and I can't do anything worthwhile apart from him. Jesus says, apart from me, You can do nothing. David knew this. Jesus taught it. And I hope that you understand that you can do nothing of spiritual significance unless you are connected to the source of life, Jesus Christ. All of your good works, 
All of your staying away from the bad, icky stuff, all of your propping yourself up is nothing if you have not made the Lord your refuge. That's the reminder here. David has done this, and we ought to do this as well. We must say, I have made the Lord my refuge. I have no good apart from you. Now, verses 3 and 4, we see this contrast again between the righteous and the wicked. I hope you're picking this up in the Psalms. This is, this is the theme of the whole book of Psalms, that there is one way for the wicked, there is another way for the righteous. And we see this again in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. And I am so glad that David included this in the psalm. We know David loves God's law. We know David loves God. But here we see that he delights in God's people. Isn't that great? Isn't that a good reminder and encouragement? I can't, I can't begin to count the number of times that the people of God have been an encouragement and a strengthening and an accountability and so many things to me. It's why God put us together. How do you think God normally operates? Say God makes a promise in his word. Something like, uh, he'll provide for all your needs. He'll strengthen you. He'll keep you. He'll, uh, he convicts of sin. He does, how do you think he normally does all those things? I think that normatively, that just means regularly, uh, I think he does it through his people. People indwelt by his spirit, yes, but people nonetheless. We are meant to be an encouraging people. We are meant to support one another, to be able to say the church The saints in the land, those who fear God, who have made the Lord their refuge, are the excellent ones, the glorious ones. And it's okay to take delight in the people of God. Do you do that? Do you delight in the people of God? Do you recognize the significance of what it means that we are a family together in Christ? Do you intentionally pursue relationships in the church? Do you put yourself out there to be an encouragement and a support for other people? We are the people of God, bought with the blood of God himself, Jesus Christ. David says he takes delight in the people of God. I mean, that's, that's why we're gathered together today. Yep, we gather together, we worship, we sing, we come to the table We hear the word preached, but there's another reason that we gather together, and we don't just do this on a screen, for example. We gather together so we can be an encouragement and an accountability to one another. Ask some questions of someone after church. See how they're doing. Invest in somebody. These are the people, if you are in Christ, look around. These are the people you are going to spend eternity with. Get to know them now. They are the excellent ones. And it is okay to take delight in the people of God. Now, that's the one hand. That's the positive. Now, the other side is in verse 4, where we see that there is wickedness. There are people who are chasing idolatry. And in verse 4, we see David's refusal to participate in this. He says that he will not 
participate in what they do, right? He's not going to pour out their drink offerings. That's a participation in what they're doing. But then he says even further, he's not even going to speak the name of their gods. You see that in verse 4? The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings. I will not pour out, nor take their names on my lips. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do. There is a separation that is to happen between the righteous and the wicked. I'm not talking about like, oh, we can't associate at all. We shouldn't evangelize. Let them be. That's not what I mean. And I think you know that. This is a participation. This is an acknowledgement. This is giving credibility to what's going on if you speak about those things. And David says, I'm not going to do it. Participation is one thing, but I'm not even going to associate by acknowledging this, by giving legitimacy to what they're doing. These people multiply their sorrows. Rather than being obsessed with the works of darkness, why don't we strive to occupy our conversations with things of the Lord? Sometimes we like to talk about the dark things and what's going on in there and how things are really sinful and wicked and we kind of almost enjoy it in a sense. To what end? Talk about things that have eternal significance. Is something going to matter in 500 years? Then talk about it. We don't need to occupy our mind with the things of darkness, with the things that will compound misery. Rather, focus on things that are eternal. Now after David makes these assertions, excuse me, In verses 5 and 6, we see this experience of faith. So this is the outcome of these things. He says, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now what he's talking about would be land. Okay, these terms, the lines have fallen for me, my portion, you hold my lot. These things have to do with land acquisition, land being given. And it's going to help us appreciate what David says here if we can deepen our understanding of what's going on. So these, I think he's referring to, and most people do, the tribal allotment. In Israel, when they came into the promised land, the land was divided up among the tribes and families and so on and so forth. And it really, the the amount of land where your land was identified who you are. It came a part of your identity. The cultivation of that land, the produce that came out of it would be your livelihood. The livestock that you raised on that, you would sell and breed and all this stuff. That would become your income. And not only that, but it would become a home for you and your family and an inheritance to pass on to your children. There's great significance in this. So when David says, everything's worked out really well, the lines have fallen in pleasant places, he means the Lord has supplied everything that he needs. And so there's certainly literal context that David's referring to here, but I think when you and I read this now, we should see these terms, portion and cup, as metaphors for God's sustaining grace. When David says the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he means God has been better to him than he would have to be. God has given him a pleasant place to dwell. And we can see that as God's provision, his sustaining grace. 
Now, the nature of God's benefits here in these verses are described as pleasant and beautiful. And certainly, other psalms affirm that the things we receive from God are good and for our enjoyment and all these things. But remember, David is not primarily going after the gifts of God, but even in how he says it, he is after God himself. His joy is not just in the land or the gifts or whatever else is coming from God. His joy is in God alone. You can see this in the way that he says, the Lord is my chosen portion. He does not say the gifts that God has given me are my portion. He says God himself is my portion, my strength, my identity. The thing that I'm going to be known for is not my land, it's God. When David says, the Lord is my chosen portion, he prefers God. I mean, again, we don't understand the significance of the land thing as much as this context intimates. But to have someone say, here's this beautiful thing that will literally set your family for generations. Security, wealth, stability. And David says, rather than that, I choose God. That's huge. That's very significant. We fall into the same trap of pursuing God because of what he can do for us. You see this in all the deal-making prayers that get prayed. But God, if you just do this, then I'll do this and this. You're going after God like a vending machine. That's not who he is. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. Now, there's certainly gifts that we receive. Josh just read from Psalm 103 this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Amen. But don't mess the order up. Follow the example of David and go after God for God himself. And he'll take care of all the benefits. These words are illustrations to help us understand, I think, the gracious provision of God for his people. Not to just draw attention to his gifts, but to draw attention to God himself. Now, as we move on to verses 7 and 8, we see another statement of confidence in the Lord and in what the Lord has done. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, some people have struggled with the idea of God's people blessing God. Blessing, as we understand it normally, means that we are receiving something, something that we needed or something that will improve our situation, perhaps. Well, God doesn't need anything from us. So some translators have taken this <coughs> and have turned the word blessing into praise. I praise the Lord who gives me counsel. But I think the word blessed is right. I think the Lord is pleased. He's blessed when his people Make him their refuge when they understand that it is God himself from which all of these blessings flow. I think it pleases God. Think of all the sacrifices and the things that we read about that it says it pleased God. I think this is the right way to talk about it. We're not putting God in our debt by blessing him. We are simply acknowledging you're the one that all things come from. And we bless you for that. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. This should remind us of Psalm 1, where we see the righteous man 
is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. The word is indwelling in him. You remember that from Psalm 1? Therefore, the Lord counsels through the word while you're awake, while you're studying, yes, but also because the law of the Lord is in the heart of this righteous man, even at night, even when he is not intentionally applying the truth of the Bible and going, okay, I'm going to find out what this says and I'm going to apply this right here. If we live in the Bible, if we dwell, if we meditate on the word of God, then even when it is not intentional, the scriptures come out. That's how David can say, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, also my heart instructs me. How does the heart instruct at night? Because it's in. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119. What an amazing God. Verse 8 tells us also of the nearness of God. Do you see this? I have set the Lord always before me. Now that means that God has priority in David's life. That's a position of honor. Putting something in front of you means this is more important. I'm going to put it here intentionally. Just like we saw earlier that David has made the Lord his Adonai, his sovereign, his master. He has put him before him. He's not trying to run ahead of God. He's not trying to outpace God. He knows that because God is his Lord and his master, he belongs out front. But that doesn't mean that there's this great separation. That's what we see here with David and God. Rather, because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That means near. If something's at your right hand, it's right here, right? Now, the right hand was a position of honor. We see Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. That's significant. In Israel, in the kings, to sit at the right hand of the king was a place of honor, prominence. It meant something. So not only has David made the Lord his refuge, but he has honored him in where he places him in his life. But it also means that God is close. He is near to David. The Lord is at hand, Paul would say in Philippians. He is close enough to hear. He's close enough to help. He's close enough to be a rock and a refuge for his people who will depend upon him. Now, last week, in Psalm 15, we saw the various character traits and attributes of the one who would be immovable. I don't know if you remember that from the end of uh, Psalm 15. The last verse says, He who does these things shall never be moved. And you could ask, or someone might ask, why would we want to do all the things that Psalm 15 says? Why would you deny yourself and and kind of give up your autonomy, your right to do whatever you want? And after going through Psalm 16, we should say, we live according to Psalm 15 because we know the God of Psalm 16. The God who is able to make firm our weak and shaky legs. The one who is able to put foundation under so that we will not be shaken. With God at your right hand, with God as your refuge, with God as your counsel, you will not be shaken. And I'm telling you, that is confidence that you cannot buy anywhere. That is only given to us by our sovereign God as a gift of his grace. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, 
for the Lord is an everlasting rock. You want to be immovable? Make the Lord your refuge. He's the rock that you can depend on. Now let's look at this last section, verses 9 through 11. After declaring what God is, what his word has done, David makes this expression, Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or allow your Holy One to see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is expressing joy and hope in God, both in life and in death. Because the Lord gives David counsel before the Lord is before him, because the Lord has made him unshakable, David experiences security and joy. This is something that everybody wants. I mean, I don't care how old you are. Children need stability. Adults need to know that things are stable. A wife needs to know that the home is not shaken around but is firm and established. Everybody needs security. And the only way to have it, really have it, is to make the Lord your refuge. David's heart is glad. He is rejoicing in the thought that Almighty God is on his side. He is his defense. He is his fortress. He is his refuge. This is where Psalm 16 just gets really sweet. This is such a great text. David's hope in God. I want you to notice this in these last verses. David's hope in God is not only for this life. That would be enough, wouldn't it? If we could go through this life with the confidence that God is with us, that he leads us, that he protects us, that he keeps us, Amen to that. But more than that, David's confidence in God is in life and death. Verse 16, David's hope is not in the fact that God will keep him from death. Note that. David's confidence and hope is in the fact that God will not leave him there. The same care, the same love, the same protection that God demonstrates through life will continue for his children into death. David died. He physically passed away. But God didn't abandon his soul. And he's not going to leave him there just to rot forever. David, the author of Psalm 16... The second king of the nation of Israel will one day bodily rise incorruptible. As will every person who has made the Lord their refuge. People have wondered for thousands of years if David knew his place in redemptive history. Did he know that he was a type of of the Messiah to come? Did he know that what he said and what he did was actually helping people understand what Messiah would say and what Messiah would do? Did he know or did he just live his life unaware of what God was doing? I think he knew. And I think that because of using the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is using scripture to interpret other scripture. So if you don't understand what's going on here, you find other texts that help you understand that. And I get this from Acts chapter 2. 
Here's the scene. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching at, at Pentecost. And he's telling this gathering of Jewish people how they messed up, how they killed the Messiah. Of course, we know it wasn't a mess up. It was the plan of God from the beginning, and Peter acknowledges that. But he says something just amazing right before he quotes Psalm 16. Peter uses this text as a defense for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is Acts chapter 2, starting verse 23. Peter says to the Jewish people, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says concerning him. And then he quotes Psalm 16, 9 through 11. David says concerning Messiah, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or allow your Holy One to see corruption. Whenever the New Testament interprets the Old, we can trust that. That's Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation. It's the best commentary you'll ever read. And so when Peter says, David was talking not just about himself, but about the Messiah, we can read that and go, okay, that helps. Because now when we come to Psalm 16, we can recognize that Jesus, not David, is the ultimate fulfillment of this text. Who cares if David is raised from the dead, if we're not? But he's not the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus' soul was not abandoned by God. Jesus' body did not go into corruption, but was raised from the dead. So shall everyone who has faith in Christ. That's the hope of this psalm. David died. He's in the ground. But because of the greater David, Jesus, the Messiah, this is so exciting, isn't it? Everyone connected with Christ will experience a resurrection like his. And just in case you get the idea that eternal life is going to be boring or dull or mundane, David says what he says. Look at verse 16, verse 11 again of chapter 16. In your presence, he's talking to God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You might think you've experienced pleasure. You might think you've experienced joy. But every experience of your joy, every experience of your pleasure has been wrecked by sin. A couple times a year, our family goes up to the North Shore, uh, up Silver Bay, Beaver Bay area. And sometimes I'm sitting there, and the lake is about from me to David away. Air's cold, coffee's hot. I'm going, man, could this get any better? What a foolish thought. Psalm 16 says, yeah. Yeah, it gets a lot better. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation has been subjected to futility. The effects of sin are seen everywhere. So what we think we know as joy, what we think we know as pleasure is nothing compared to what it will be in glory. You know why? It will be perfect. God will be there. Some people think it's really dangerous and wrong to be motivated by pleasure. I don't. Not if that pleasure originates and finds its fulfillment in a perfect, holy, sovereign God who loves you 
and has no end of resources or imagination or time to help you experience all of that. You have eternity to plumb the depths of joy with Christ. Mm. It's so good. This is so good. Now before you stop listening and start emailing me about the dangers of pleasure, let me just say a word about how this is mediated to us. There is a qualification here. This is not an endorsement to just go do whatever you want. Remember what we just read in Acts chapter 2, that this promise of resurrection, this promise of joy, this promise of pleasure was fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. So God's people are not to pursue pleasure and joy simply for the sake of pleasure and joy. There's only one reason that we go after these things. You know what it is? Because these things belong to Christ and we belong to him. That's the qualifier here. This is not an endorsement to go pursue your selfishness. This is an endorsement to pursue Jesus who is the path to everlasting life and joy. You believe that? Have you made the Lord your refuge? I'll just close by asking a few questions that just came into my mind as, as I studied this text and was thinking about these things. It's one thing to say that you've made the Lord your refuge. I think most Christians would probably say, yeah, of course, the Lord is my refuge. But what does that mean for you? Have you? Have you truly made the Lord your refuge? Or every time something comes up, do you run to Fox News? I gotta see what's going on. What's going on with this? What's, what's happening? Where do you run? I mean, that, what is a refuge? A refuge is a safe place. It's a fortress. It's a place to get to when you are in danger. So a really tangible way to tell if you have made the Lord your refuge is what do you do in trouble? Do you run to the word of God? Do you run to Christian fellowship or do you run to what the world has and multiply your sorrows? Do you have confidence that at the end of this life, whether that be five minutes from now or 50 years from now, do you have confidence that the same love and care and preserving grace that God has shown you through your life will continue into eternity? You know what this psalm is about? Hope and confidence. Do you have it? You may have walked with the Lord for years, but you are unsure about this one thing. You can have confidence right now. If you will make the Lord your refuge, turn away from self-reliance. Turn away from chasing the things of the world, it multiplies sorrow. Christ, our hope in life and death. There's a reason we sang that song today. Because that's exactly what this psalm tells us. Maybe God is reminding you that there is a path that leads to life 
You make known to me the path of life. Maybe he's making that known to you this morning. And I'm here to tell you, don't turn away from that. Take it. Receive it by faith and walk in this path of life. The end is eternal joy and pleasure. Thanks be to God. Isn't it, I mean, I'm just encouraged. I'm just, I'm getting done with this and I don't want to be done. I can fold this, I can close this, whatever. I want to keep going. You know the implication of this? And this is what I want you to do this week. Work this out in your mind. If this is true, if Psalm 16 holds true, and there is hope of eternal life, there is pleasure at the right hand of God, it is mediated to us by Jesus Christ, then what should you do with it? Think about that. God's got a plan for you. He's got something for you to do before he calls you home, so do it. Let this motivate you to love and good works as Christ called us to. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for encouraging our hearts. Thank you for reminding us that when this physical life is over, there is a greater life yet to come. Purchased by the blood of your Son, given to us freely by your grace through faith. Help us to be motivated, Lord, by the hope of eternal life. And more than worldly hope, help us to have a confidence that because you are the one who has promised this, it will happen. Man makes his promises, he makes his pledges, it means nothing. But when you make a promise, it is unbreakable. So God, give us faith to trust you. Give us faith to believe that this word is true. Help us to turn away from the idols of the world and trust in Jesus, the only hope in life and death. Do it. For the glory of your name, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.